Hello, Seattle and Pacific Northwest. Welcome to the seventh episode of the Startup Seattle podcast. At Startup Seattle, we feature leading members of the Pacific Northwest startup ecosystem. We seek to have engaging conversations with founders, investors, and other key players in this community. Hope you find us interesting and support us by sharing with your friends and colleagues. Today, we are going to do something slightly different. Instead of a one-on-one interview, three of us are going to have a discussion. I'll be moderating and sharing as well. We'll be having a discussion about our angel investing experience in Seattle. We have David Hoppy. Hello, David. Hello. Javier Soto. Hello, Javier. And myself, Krishnan Gopalan. Okay, David, why don't we start with you? Uh, can you give us a quick, quick intro about yourself? Uh, I sure can. Uh, again, my name is David Hoppy. I've been an angel investor here in the Seattle area for just about three years now. Um, and we'll talk uh, quite a bit about that, I'm sure. Uh, in my regular life, my day job, uh, I have a long experience in the games industry, uh, over 25 years, uh, covering all kind of facets of, of games from you know, the original early days of Wizards of the Coast, which many of you might know for uh, Magic the Gathering and Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, also a tour of duty with Xbox, uh, worked in digital uh, mobile games for a number of years as well. And, uh, and then most recently have been back in the, uh, in the tabletop side of the business running uh, the largest event in the tabletop industry. So applying the things I've learned uh, in that space uh, over the years uh, to, to angel investing. It's quite a bit of fun. Thanks, David. Javier? Yes, uh, my name is Javier Soto. I am originally from Spain, living now in the uh, United States. I've been doing angel investing for the last five years. And uh, I do not come from a technical background from the point of view of computer science, so I don't have that experience. I have never been really a founder of a startup, as we understand the startups. Uh, so I come with fresh eyes and an outsider point of view to analyze in startups. I have a background in finance uh, and industrial engineering. Excellent, Javier. And myself, uh, Krishnan, I've spent uh, 20 years in Microsoft in uh, development and program management roles. That's the only big company that I've worked in. You know, I grew with the companies, so which is always exciting to work on successive 1.0 version products, say from eHome to uh, the System Center Cloud. Uh, and I've uh, built and sh shipped a lot of enterprise and consumer products. I left in uh, 2012. Since then, you know, I've been angel investing. I'm still at it. Uh, I was also a technology partner in uh, Atlas Accelerator in 2014, 15, and 16. And it was one of the earliest accelerators in the Seattle area. I also had a few operational roles in a few startup companies, uh, helping founders define market, build product, and guidance in fundraising, and uh, did that for equity. So um, with that um, intro, let's, uh, uh, let's guys talk about our angel investing experience. So uh, Javier, you said you started five years ago. How did you get into angel investing? Yeah, at that moment in my life, I was uh, trying to find, a, to initiate a new chapter in my life. And uh, I had tried uh, getting into development track, into coding, but I'm a very, very bad developer. So I saw this thing called Sierra Angel Conference and they had one of the cohorts starting. So I said, okay, 
uh, where I have been the best or the most lucky has been in investments in finance. Uh, could this be could be analyzing startups similar to analyzing public companies? I would imagine that no. But can I transfer some of my experience into that? And I tried, and that's how I started. I did Seattle Angel Conference to see if I was if it was for me, if this was a good way to diversify, a good way to to do it seriously. Excellent. And how about you, David? Yeah. Well. It- Similar to Javier, you know, I was at a, a point in my career where, um, you know, I had sort of a career path uh, laid out in front of me. Um, and again, you know, still in, in the what is both a broad and narrow niche of, of games and entertainment. And so I was thinking about how could I branch outside of that while still not giving up my day job. Uh, in addition to that, you know, always looking for ways to, you know, uh, diversify my portfolio uh, and also just be engaged, be engaged in a, in a new community. Uh, so similar to Javier, a couple of years after him uh, started out uh, with Seattle Angel Conference, which is a you know, really great way to, to just, you know, check it out, get your feet wet, start to see what uh, the angel investing community is about. You know, you're, you're pot committed when you go into Seattle Angel Conference, you have to invest, you have to commit. Uh, and it really puts your feet to the fire and it's a great education. Uh, and so after completing a session of that, then, you know, continue to be interested in, in, you know, helping founders, uh, learning about new technologies, really having my finger on, on a little bit of what's happening in the Seattle area uh, and just kept going from there. Excellent. Excellent. So, uh, so I, you know, as I told you, you know, I left Microsoft, uh, uh, been lucky to uh, work there for 20 years. Uh, I left there and I was looking for next steps, uh, you know, uh, twiddling my thumbs for a few months. And a friend came along, Ganapati Krishnan, and he invited me as a guest to the uh, AOA monthly lunch. Uh, he got me excited there because, you know, I absorbed a fire hose of information over the next six months and um, honed in on one company that I thought was interesting. And I you know, started leading the due diligence for that company. And it was at the intersection of the mobile and uh, medical device space. And um, I, that was my first investment. Uh, and I've you know, continued since then, um, absorbing the fire hose of opportunities and information, but you know, being become more realistic and measured. Uh, and um, and you know, I really, uh, I'm, I'm excited about you know, the, the stuff that I do in terms of uh, interacting with founders and going through the due diligence uh, during, um, uh, during an angel investing experience. So, um, so, so Javier, I mean, can you share some highlights of your portfolio? I mean, uh, you probably, you know, have a, a spreadsheet to track that stuff. So what does your portfolio look like? Uh, I have invested in, I think, 18 companies uh, of entity. Then I have a smaller bets uh, in other small uh, kind of smaller bets companies, and then I have participations in funds like Sea Change, uh, the three Seattle Angel Conference that I did, and Swan uh, Venture Fund. Uh, but the ones that I have committed myself, where I have written the biggest checks, uh, is too early to tell. So the ones that are not going to make it, they usually close in the first two three years. And of those, I already have two closes. So two companies have had to close their doors. 
I've had a, one good exit, an acquisition after two years, and I had another partial exit, meaning that it was uh, part was in cash, part was in shares of the acquirer. So that one is still to be seen. And of the rest, it's going to need another couple of years to begin to see if the first acquisitions begin to, to show up. The, the way that I did it uh, was, I promised myself when I started that first I was going to see if this was for me. And once I did it, uh, after that, those two months of Seattle Angel Conference, I promised myself not to invest, not to write a single check until a year later. Uh, because I wanted to make sure that I did all the due diligence and I saw as many companies as possible before I started committing. So I joined Sea Change, which is an angel fund uh, professionally managed, but with the help of the angels who do the screening, the due diligence, etc. And I did a ton of due diligence there. I joined uh, Alliance of Angels and did some due diligence there. And I did another couple of Sierra Angel conference rounds. I almost made it for the year, but I couldn't help myself and I invested nine months after I started my first check uh, with the idea that I was going to build a certain portfolio with a very measured uh, pace, which would be like two to four, five companies a year. So not to get too much ahead of myself and trying to strive to invest in one to three percent of the companies that I saw just to make sure that everything has been uh, analyzed and I have made the most, what I think or I thought were the most rational choices. So it looks like you follow a pretty uh, disciplined approach. I think it's very important. I think that uh, angels should have a disciplined approach to angel investing. They should strive to create a portfolio and they should deploy their capital over time and they should not fall in love. They should have a very cold, objective uh, point of view. Even if it's impossible because you cannot help but uh, fall in love with the ideas and fall in love with the founders because uh, the moment that you begin to, to engage with them and analyze, uh, everything be begins, uh, becomes subjective. There's a, a part of rationality and a part of gut feeling and everything has to come together. Got it. So David, uh, what are some of the highlights of your portfolio? Yeah, well, I, I just wanted to uh, build on what Javier was saying, because I think it's a really excellent point. You know, I'm still pretty early in my angel investing journey. And some of the best advice that I got uh, early on was, you know, don't jump in too fast. I think, you know, we talked about Seattle Angel Conference. And I think it's great because as I said, it, it sort of forces you to, to make a first step. But then once you make that step, I think um, Javier is right. It's really important to, to step back and really learn. Um, and so, you know, for me, I, I tried to hold back, you know, for the first couple of uh, years and it was maybe a little over a year or so ago, you know, I was 18 months, two years into uh, this process and felt I was finally starting to, uh, you know, have a, an intelligent point of view about this and uh, have, have looked to start, you know, ramping up my investment. Uh, but then of course, my investment rate, but then of course, you know, COVID has come along and there, while there's still deal flow out there, uh, it seems that the, it's, it's a little bit trickier right now. Um, and so, you know, of the half dozen or so companies that I couldn't resist 
um, over the last couple of years. Uh, you know, I think I was just looking before this call, I think 60% of them are still really quite active and doing well, um, raising additional rounds. Two are just kind of in the not sure uh, segment. Uh, none have none have died yet, um, but you know I think uh, you know, time will tell. And and it, it's a long process, right? I mean, you 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 expect to take three to five years, I think, before seeing any meaningful return. Before you can even start to evaluate, are you are you any really good at this? You know, what's what kind of IRR can you actually expect to see out of a portfolio? Um, so you know, I feel good about where things are right now, but uh, you know, there's a lot more work to do. Excellent. So, you know, from my uh, personal, my highlights uh, would be that, uh, you know, I've been investing for now for 10 years and I'm counting um, 51 investments. Um, that's like on an average of five per year, which is, uh, uh, which is what I'm tracking. And uh, out of that, uh, I've got like, you know, 12 have either died or returned partial principal. Um, and uh, I had four positive exits. Um, and I think my best exit was probably about a 4.8x, uh, still waiting for that uh, mythical 10x uh, return that many people have promised, right? <laughs> and um, a few are unknown status, you know, haven't heard back from them for a while. And so about 33 are live and active. So these are companies that are still uh, raising, making progress uh, and, uh, and, and you know, uh, undergoing the, the hustle. And hopefully, um, you know, uh, when I look around uh, maybe about a year from now or two years from now um, that, um, you know, things will look a lot better in terms of overall performance. Uh, so I, if I look, I also looked at my portfolio in terms of, you know, uh, direct investments where I'm as an individual, investing directly in the company versus uh, being in a group, uh, which is you typically call a syndicate or a special purpose vehicle, but a group of people put in uh, uh, money to, uh, to essentially pull together and uh, invest as an entity. So I've invested more as, an, as a pooled entity, like a, a, a SPV, as a syndicate, rather than individual. So roughly... I would say about you know 21 um, uh, individual checks and then 30 as a part of uh, SPV. And I've noticed that uh, the SPV seem to be doing a little better. So that's something that I will continue to monitor and uh, you know uh, look at patterns for why uh, an SPV performance is better overall. But you know if you look at the uh, dollars committed, I've committed more dollars directly rather than through SPV. So that's something that uh, I, I'll continue to monitor and see how things are going there. Um, you know, I was going to say that, you know, I think uh, a syndicate can be really valuable depending on the, the folks that you're co-investing with, because people come into a group like that with different perspectives, uh, different histories and different skill sets. And it's, it's really remarkable you know, to me, when working with a group on due diligence, uh, how that can expose new new insights and things that I might never have thought about, and and sway my decision whether to to go forward or to hold back. Um, and you know, it, you just can't under you can't underestimate the value of being in the same room and and hearing the questions that other people are asking. So, absolutely, it might be a little bit of a clue as to why your your syndicates seem to be performing a little bit better. 
Um, so just to clarify, right, even the individual checks that I've written uh, have, have been through, uh, 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 through uh, uh, leads that have come into a group setting. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not like I'm meeting an invest, uh, an entrepreneur directly and writing a check without talking to anybody else. So it's been through the Alliance of Angels or from the, the Thai, Seattle, um, uh, those. So the, the group setting is uh, what I'm talking about. Even though we are not investing as syndicates, we are, uh, we are putting individual checks. So each individual has to make the decision to invest, but the group dynamic still uh, persists there as well. Yeah, 100%. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that it's very important to understand. I say that uh, I think that to be good at analyzing startups is not about the technology, it's about the human behavior and it's about the human component, the human factor. And the same applies to due diligence and how we interact with each other uh, in terms of angels. So the important thing is, it is absolutely true that you need to have as many different points of view on a deal as possible. Uh, number two, you need to be very aware that it's okay to disagree because the truth, it's very, very elusive. And the company will fail or succeed in by, because of things that you cannot even foresee in most of the cases. So, but you have to feel comfortable disagreeing with other people because there is a feedback loop that is the danger when you are doing due diligence with others, where if you are in a room with another 10 angels and nine of them think that they are, and the company is not investable, you may have a big pressure to go along. So that's the importance of self-awareness as an investor to really maximize the value of uh, many eyes on the deal and many different voices. Absolutely, Javier. I mean, I've seen the other way where in a room, nine out of 10 angels say, yeah, this is the company that uh, I want to invest in. And I find something that just, you know, is not suitable for me and I will step back. Uh, I found myself in such situations and, you know, that also can happen. Oh, yeah. I have I have been in situations where uh, many, many angels were making a decision together because it's by vote. And the ball or the discussion begins to move towards a yes. And you can feel how it gets inertia and there's more uh, positive reinforcement towards the yes. And I end up saying yes. And it's amazing after you leave the meeting and it's like, it's amazing how the power of the group, especially if, if it's a, a big group, can move and can uh, trick yourself into decisions that afterwards you might think, well, that wasn't the right decision. So I think it's a very interesting from a social psychological point. And definitely the other way too, right? I mean, Javier, you'd have to agree, you've been in those, those meetings where you know, a couple of people start piling onto a company and talking about all the, the warts and bad things. And everyone then starts finding additional faults and it just piles up and the momentum is there and you walk away from it. And then you, you know, you leave that meeting and you're thinking, yeah, but I still think there's something there. And how did, you know, didn't more people think this was good? And how did we get to such a negative sentiment about it? And I think that that's something that uh, we have talked about before. Uh, and I think it was an idea from Yoko Okano, now a partner of First uh, Row Partners, uh, MicroVC, uh, that the way we frame the discussions is also super important. So I love this idea of you don't focus on the negatives, you frame the negatives as open questions. What evidence would you need to see to sway your opinion? 
what data would validate, would prove to you that that question is not a problem. So the way we frame and the way we kind of create those conversations is also important. Yeah, absolutely, Javier. And, you know, also, you know, at this stage, you know, we are in an early stage uh, investing scenario and, you know, the, the, the founder and the startup, you know, doesn't have all the answers, um, you know, and a platter and ready uh, for you to consume. And so you have to assess the, you have to give, you know, positive points for things where they have answers and, and, uh, and negative for places where they don't have answers. And then, you know, make a overall scorecard of whether that uh, investment makes sense for you uh, by balancing the positives and the negatives. And of course, you know, knowing the, uh, the weightage of each positive and each negative. So um, let's, um, let's ask ourselves the question, you know, why angel invest at all, right? I, I know we, this is like a little bit later in the discussion, but let's go back and, you know, uh, we talked about why we started angel investing, but you know, what are some of the, the key factors that um, make us continue to angel invest? Um, David, you want to start with that? Sure, I, I can say one thing um, that, that's really important to me personally as, as, you know, in addition to the potential financial upside, you know, I spent uh, a, a number of years working, uh, as I mentioned, in mobile games, and we were all about acquiring audience and, and you know, how do, we, how do we market those? How do we maximize the, the LTV versus the cost of acquisition for customers? And I found that, you know, I was spending all day, you know, staring at spreadsheets and, uh, you know, looking at my total user base and growth in those metrics and realizing that I was just, you know, staring at an Excel spreadsheet as a abstraction of human beings. And, you know, we were making uh, marketing investments every day based on that. And what I realized is that, you know, there is a limit to, you know, how interesting, I mean, for me at least, how interesting it is it is to make an investment uh, just based on a spreadsheet. It's far more um, you know, satisfying to make an investment in a person or a team of people and to know who those people are. And if you can help that team be more successful, um, you know, the, the psychic rewards are really great with that. And if it doesn't work out, then, you know, probably you learn something along the way and contributing to the to the overall you know, uh, you know, uplifting of the of the human condition here, or at least the the business environment and the the ground for you know creative, innovative thinking uh, here in Seattle. So, you know, being able to play a small part in that is is probably why I choose to uh, you know devote a part of my portfolio to startups versus just you know putting it in the S and P or something like that. Right, right. I find uh, David that uh, you know investing in startups and doing angel investing is you know is both inspirational for me you know by uh, getting to know the you know different things that people are doing and attempting. Uh, it also builds a lot of empathy for me. You know, uh, looking at the struggles, the challenges, the successes uh, that uh, uh, these entrepreneurs are having. And of course, you know the um, the potential for a good exit is also there up in the um, uh, you know up in my head. But the the, the struggles and the challenges and the rewards that uh, that uh, these uh, founders and entrepreneurs are going through that really inspires me and that uh, you know enables me to uh, invest in in um, uh, do angel investing. Javier, anything to share here? Yeah, I think that my reasons are very egoistical. Uh, on one hand, 
there is a financial incentive and I am, I am in it to make money. So there's no doubt about that. That is the necessary condition. And I will never say otherwise. And every time that I make an investment, I don't make an investment and write it off. No, I want to make sure that it succeeds and that it's a sound investment, even taking into account all the uncertainties that may result in whatever. The second one is because I really, really, really enjoy people and enjoy founders and engaging with them. And it's, I have become passionate about uh, the human condition, about incentives and goals, kind of game theory applied to uh, psychology and empathy and all the trials and tribulations and what are customers thinking and what how I put myself in other people's shoes. All that part is uh, uh, very interesting to me. And third, because I love changing lanes. I love doing due diligence in unrelated fields and having to learn from scratch about new industries and new markets and try to understand new customers and try to see and evaluate new founders and try to empathize with them and try to, to see through their eyes. So that kind of constant change, I find super rewarding. The human factor, I think it's it's amazing. And then the financial part. So those Excellent. So we are talking to uh, David Hoppy and uh, Javier Soto, and we are uh, discussing our angel investing experience. And uh, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we will talk about how to get started angel investing in Seattle. We'll be right back. We are back. And um, we have today a panel of uh, three of us, David Hoppy, Javier Soto, and myself. And uh, we are talking about our angel investing experience. So Javier, uh, uh, you know, uh, you've been uh, quite a, a busy angel investor. So uh, why don't you share something about, you know, how to get started with angel investing in Seattle? You had mentioned Seattle Angel Conference that you started with um, and you had, um, can you talk to us about that? Yeah, the way I did it, uh, well, the first thing is that the constant in my journey, angel investing has been never to do it alone, always do it with others. Uh, so I started in Seattle Angel Conference because it's a great training wheels to see if this is for you, to see if you may think this is interesting in the long term uh, as a path. Uh, and then I did, once I knew that that was for me, I did two things. I joined an angel fund. In this case, it was SeaChange, but later on I did a Swan Venture Fund. Again, it's group of great angels working together to do due diligence and to make decisions. In those cases, in the funds, we are making decisions together in the fund. So we vote if we are going to invest in companies or not. But nevertheless, the due diligence, doing due diligence with others, learning from their experience, what are the key drivers of things, where to put the attention, what are the questions, the key questions that you should be asking. That is a fantastic experience to have. Uh, and then I joined networks. I joined uh, Alliance of Angels, which is the biggest network here in Seattle, in the Pacific Northwest. And uh, again, you have fantastic members that it's a pleasure to do the diligence with them in deal by deal basis. 
Uh, David, anything to share about uh, angel investing in Seattle, how to get started for both, uh, you know, uh, people just starting out uh, as well as people, you know, who've had, ex you know, experienced careers who want to start with angel investing? Yeah, well, I, I, I share um, Javier's endorsement of Seattle Angel Conference as a, as a way to start. Um, you know, the, the companies that come in to, uh, to Seattle Angel Conference are very, uh, usually very raw and sometimes uh, need quite a bit of help. And so they get, you get a chance to really interact with founders and really um, try to help them shape what they're doing. It's a, it's a very long uh, process, uh, but everybody's on the same page. So, so that's really great. I, I think the, um, you know, coming out of that as, as I did, uh, you know, one of the first things I did was talk to anybody that I know who currently angel invests and just spend the time, you know, for the cost of a zoom call or a cup of coffee, just, uh, to gain some insight and to understand a little bit more about the ins and outs and who the major players are, um, uh, in, uh, the area. Um, and, you know, Javier has basically named most of the, the, the major ones to be involved with. Although, um, you know, Javier skipped over Grubstakes, which is a, a network, a, a loose affiliation of uh, investors that Javier is a, a key uh, driver of, and I think we're all members of. Um, and that's a really great model where, um, as opposed to, you know, having to be 100% committed to a fund uh, or, you know, a, a you know, beauty contest, sort of the way Seattle Angel Conference runs. Uh, we just look at deal flow and uh, have a very uh, open and um, honest and forthright evaluation process. And people can select in or out of individual investments or out of syndicates for companies that, that more than, you know, a few members get behind. Uh, or if the uh, minimum investment is, uh, you know, so high that, you know, people don't want to make that check writing individually. Um, it's a really great group. We've, um, well, Javier would know exactly when it started, but it, it formed uh, at least four or five years ago. Uh, and uh, I've been actively involved in it. Uh, and, uh, you know, we unfortunately not been able to meet physically. Uh, and so switching over to virtual only format in a, in a, in a COVID environment where we have this relatively uh, loose affiliation, it, it's, it's a little bit uh, slow, but I anticipate that once we start to move out of the pandemic, that, that grub stakes will be uh, going again strong. So um, super enthusiastic about that as a, as a way to really get the, take the next step in, in angel investing. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. I completely forgot uh, about the grub stakes, but consider that grub stakes was formed inside Seattle Angel Conference. So in the first SAC that I did, uh, there were like three or four of us. And afterwards, it's like, man, we had so much fun doing this thing together that we should uh, continue outside of Seattle Angel Conference. And that's how we decided to have these monthly meetings and share deals with email and starting doing due diligence together. And that's what I see a lot of angels doing is even if you belong to different networks, uh, you end up finding your tribe. You end up finding the people uh, that you trust who have the most orthogonal point of view to you, because if everybody thinks the same, then there's no added value, uh, but that you can really hash it out, uh, analyzing companies. Uh, and that's what I would recommend every angel investor to look forward to.
finding your tribe, creating your tribe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So uh, yeah, excellent, excellent points all in terms of getting uh, started uh, with angel investing in Seattle. Um, let's do a, a, you know, let's uh, switch to uh, due diligence. Um, let's do a quick process highlight, you know, from first meeting to the due diligence to the closing. Um, you know, it could be a, a, a long process potentially. So, um, so David, what, um, you know, are there any, any aspects of that process that you more focus on? What are some of the highlights of that process that you tend to, um, you know, uh, tend to work through? What I, you know, there's, there's so many factors uh, in a due diligence process. I mean, I think the most important one, of course, is, is the opportunity to, you know, look the founders in the eye, to ask questions, mm -hmm. and to get a sense of, you know, is this a, a person who is going to be committed to the long haul and has, um, has what I would refer to as a level of uh, earned insight uh, which is this notion that that they've they've figured out something, or right? they have some level of you know experience or education or credentialing that allows them to see a business problem in a new light, and is that is that thing that they have seen? Um, are they really bringing it to light in in the most effective way? And you know, have they is it the right time to translate this into a product? Um, that's probably the first place that I always start in a due diligence process. And then, then it's making sure that, you know, there's a good product market fit going through, you know, is the, is the TAM really legit? Is it something to get excited about? And, you know, from a, um, and, and does the company uh, fit, you know, my profile? I tend to, because of the, my approach, I, I tend to take a higher risk, higher reward approach. So, you know, like like you, I think Krishna, you're mentioning like that that 10x at least 10x uh, return is is what I'm in the game for, uh, and uh, so you know trying to see uh, are there ways that that the product or the market that they are addressing does that have extensibility? Does it have adequate size? And then you know from then on it just kind of goes down the chain, making sure that the financials are sound, uh, that the the roadmap for fundraising makes sense. Um, you know, do, do all the, the, the financial boxes ticks, tick and tie. But, you know, if I don't get through those first couple of hurdles, then I think, you know, the rest is, is you know, can come afterwards. Right. Um, so, yeah, I tend to, fo uh, you know, focus on, you know, are the, are the uh, red flags uh, and, I mean, a potential, you know, high uh, yellow flags out of the way before, I spend a lot of time with the entrepreneur. Um, so, uh, which means that, um, you know, in, in times of COVID, you know, you cannot go look at the, spend time uh, with the team in their workspace. Um, and, and of course, you know, after the initial pitch where, you know, after I size up the market opportunity, uh, it is, uh, you know, time for the product uh, analysis and see, you know, how much of the product has been built and whether the uh, entrepreneur has, you know, de-risked most of the product uh, development uh, aspect of it. And if they've, you, you know, the thing that, that I get attracted to is, you know, have they used unconventional techniques 
uh, or being able to uh, achieve results or traction without, you know, without a lot of, uh, you know, throwing a lot of money at it. You know, what are some of the techniques they've used? And that, you know, usually tells me that uh, they are resourceful and can um, in the future be able to do more with less. Uh, that gives me a good clue. Uh, I found, you know, many good uh, entrepreneurs uh, with that trait and, you know, they they seem to be doing, you know, well overall. Uh, and uh, so my, uh, you know, due diligence, I, I do to uh, spend a lot of time on the product and, um, you know, how much has been developed and whether it meets the customer's needs. Uh, I, I tend to focus on that. Um, so Javier, you're a financial guy or ex-financial guy. So do you uh, do a lot of uh, in-depth analysis of the financial model? Absolutely not. I think, <laughs> I think that spreadsheets support everything. I think the financial model uh, is bogus completely. Things are going to change a thousand times. The Analyzing the financial model is not about the, the forecasts. You cannot do MPVs. This is just crazy. It's about the assumptions. It's, the key issue is, is the human factor, is the customers. Is this really a problem for customers, which is the single biggest obstacle for startups that I see, is that they get ahead too much with product, too much with vision, and they don't grok the customer. So on one hand, uh, the customer. Number two, the founders, uh, the team. Is it a complete team? Do they have the domain functional? experience necessary are they operators are they as you say are they hungry and they do do they advance with limited means or are they waiting for the money to do stuff so there's a lot of different things that can be said but i would say that the key issue is the human factor number one uh, the customer understanding the customer and seeing if there is really a problem uh, and is this a team that you would hire if the idea was uh, yours, if this was your startup and you had to hire a whole team, would you hire these guys? Is this the team, the perfect team to make this happen? Are they flexible? Are they operators? Are they hungry? Do they have the mentality of like a restaurant owner knows their patrons and they are asking them when they are leaving if they are happy with the, with the uh, service? That, that kind of mentality, that kind of incentives, goals, visions, plans, etc. is in the aggregate from the team and from the customer where I put the most emphasis. And then you need the technology. But my experience so far is that the technology risk is much lower usually than the customer acquisition risk. So there's always a lot of tools. There's a lot of things that can be done with technology unless this is something very fringe, very high tech. Uh, then usually the problem is in the customer acquisition, not so much in the ability to create the technology behind it. Right, and on the and on the financial model aspect, uh, Javier, right? I mean, I do tend to look, I don't look at the all the details, um, but I do uh, gain insight by seeing, you know, what are the assumptions, as you yes. said, that the entrepreneur is making, what are the levers that they are hoping to pull, uh, you know, to achieve growth, and, uh, you know, is what they're explaining in terms of the business model uh, in the pitch deck consistent with what they are putting in the financial model? 
right? If 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 a business says, oh, we're going to you know make money through partners, uh, through resellers, you know, are they uh, are they uh, putting in the right uh, amount of say margins in the financial model, you know, for that reseller model, um, business model? So I tend to kind of uh, see it as a as a consistency check rather than as a a deep oh this is going to be the truth in terms of what these guys are going to be able to achieve um, you know uh, uh, financially over the course of the next five years. Yeah, but I would say that I I want to especially at the very early stage I want to differentiate between uh, does it work from optimization. So when you're talking, for example, with hardware companies. And they are giving you the the, the cost uh, kind of distribution and how it's going to change over time and who's going to be the suppliers and manufacturers. They haven't really figured out a lot of things and they will have time to figure things out. For me, more important, this is the same as customer discovery. I don't care so much if the customers, when you ask them, uh, if they would, they could, or they are willing to pay something in the future. I care about what they did and why they did those things. But this is the same. I care about the short term. I mean, I obviously care about the, the long term vision, but I know that they will have to micro pivot a thousand times to get there. So I want to make sure that, as you say, it is consistent what they have done with what they are going to do next. So I put a lot of emphasis in the first 12 months and exactly what they have done in the past six months. It's like, hey, we are acquiring, we are going to acquire customers and we're going to do it these tactics. Okay. What have you done to validate that those tactics can work? Can you give me the name of the next five customers that you are going to hit or that you are going to be able to convert? Uh, those kind of in the trenches, data at your fingertips, operator uh, mind is what I give more importance than uh, the long term vision, because there's so many things that are going to change. It's like if you look at the biggest unicorns, they all started in something different. So you need the flexibility of the right team with the right uh, grit and the right flexibility. You know, what, what you what you were talking about, you know, as a in terms of the initial customers, uh, it reminds me of, I believe it's Andrew Chen out of Andreessen Horowitz who talks about uh, the law of crappy cohorts, although he uses slightly more colorful language to describe them. But, you know, this is this idea that if you go ask, you you know, entrepreneurs will always talk about the these first 10 customers that they have or potential customers who say, you know, oh yeah, we would definitely use this product. We love it. But that's that's like your best cohorts or when you're when you're um, in the business of going after uh, cohorts in a digital advertising space, you know, Facebook will sell you on your first your first hit, you know, they will sell you a great cohort and the, the conversion rate on that cohort will be fantastic. But as time goes on, it gets harder and harder to find those high value customers. And so I'm always very uh, looking out for, um, you know, entrepreneurs who are aware of that or who can you know, a team that says, from a marketing standpoint, it's going to be very easy to get started, but how are we going to address when it gets harder and harder? And, and relatedly, on that, on that go-to-market standpoint, the, you know, a big red flag, I think, is often, you know, how many pitches have we seen where people talk about viral acquisition? And viral acquisition, you know, it's great when the engine is, is running and, you know, Farmville was able to do that on Facebook years ago, uh, but it doesn't happen very often. And it's certainly not a business strategy. It's like a, it's a hope and a prayer versus an actual business strategy for acquiring customers. 
Absolutely. So um, uh, switching up a little bit. Uh, so, you know, we have these interactions with uh, founders as angel investors. Um, what are some of the, you know, responsibilities that we have as angel investors during the due diligence process and af even after we invest? Um, Javier, you want to uh, start uh, attack this first? Yes, the first thing is uh, to be truthful. If you are not going to invest or you don't have the means at a specific moment in time, uh, just don't take the meetings. Don't waste people's times. So I think that as angels, it's super important that we understand that the time that they are dedicating to us in the meeting uh, is because we are interested in going further. It's not just to uh, be entertained, engage with founders, or feel relevant in the community. So that's number one. Uh, and second, I would say uh, we can add a lot of value, uh, especially, and I, I see that at the very early stage, even before they, they go fundraising, we can be a safe haven to provide information about the weaknesses in their pitch, about what are the preferred uh, uh, instruments for investors uh, based on historical standards, uh, what are the key questions that people are going to raise so they are prepared, so they can go faster also in the diligence. So I think that we can give a lot of perspective of what happens from the other side of the table, which is not cheating. It's just, it's going to make the conversations faster and much more added value. So I think that the one of the biggest added values we can provide is first, respect their time. Second, obviously, confidentiality. And third, uh, add value. Let's give them uh, the feedback, the real feedback, and tell them as we see things from the other side, which we, and also always prefacing it with the fact that uh, each one of us is a hammer and everything looks like a nail. So we come to the table with our uh, preconceptions and biases. So the fact that someone has been a great a CEO of a company that became public 30 years ago, that's great, but that may not be translatable to a startup today in the zero to one phase. So we have to be humble also not to uh, tell them what to do. We just have to give them another point of view, data. We just have to give them data so they can take the right decisions. Excellent points. Uh, David, you want to add to that? Yeah, well, I, I would certainly uh, agree that, that that ability to say no uh, is, is really important. One of the hardest things to do is you, you take a meeting with an entrepreneur and they deliver you the pitch and they're all uh, excited about it and you're not excited about it. And, you know, being forthright right from the beginning to, or, you know, at the end, I guess, to say, I'm not interested in writing a check, but how can I help you? Uh, the how can I help you part is easy. The I'm not interested in writing a check is sometimes very hard to do. I think also, you know, being uh, many entrepreneurs uh, spend so much time, you know, preparing for a pitch or, or actually building out the product that they come and when they pitch, they bring a level of complexity and insider knowledge, uh, particularly if they're coming from an industry where, you know, they've had a lot of domain experience. And, uh, you know, being able to stop people uh, and say, you need to tailor this 
this pitch to someone who doesn't know anything about what you're talking about. Uh, I think that's one of the most valuable pieces of advice that, that you know, angel investors can provide. Um, and then, of course, that, that honesty, right? Like this, the, the yeses, you know, like, oh, this is a great pitch. Um, you know, they, they are, it's, it's not necessarily helpful. I think I've had many experiences where I've been fairly critical of uh, an investor pitch, uh, uh, an entrepreneur's pitch, and, you know, they come back and tell me that was really great feedback. You know, no one had said that kind of thing to me before. It really helps clarify what we need to do. I think being able to, to, to provide that brutal honesty can be very helpful if it's done in the right way. Okay. Okay, great. So a few points that I want to add uh, is um, one, you know, the, the, the entrepreneur is always, um, uh, you know, their time is uh, precious. So it's important to scale up the process as much as possible. So, you know, if you're a group of, say, you know, 10, 15 people, angels who want to invest in the company, uh, you know, don't try to have, you know, 15 one-on-one meetings if you plan to have, if you have a bunch of questions or if you are doing a, 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 a you know, a conference call, try to do it together so that uh, information, you know, flows uh, easier and the entrepreneur is not, uh, you know, spending the time saying the same thing over and over again to, you know, 15 people, right? So that is, that I think is, is an important aspect. And I think most groups, you know, do that because there's a lot of collaborative tools today already. Uh, and the second point is, you know, once I commit, um, you know, I don't keep quiet after that. I try to, um, I would say, you know, don't leave it at that, you know, try to uh, help the entrepreneur close the round, you know, not by overselling, but, you know, by, um, by talking to other angels, other people in the network and uh, making potential introductions so that, uh, you know, this is once you're convinced that you're going to invest and you have, uh, you find this company really worthy of investment is to help the entrepreneur close the round is an immediate value add that uh, uh, as an investor you could do. I would even add that you should do that before even you commit. I think that uh, if if you can, uh, that is a great added value uh, that we can add. So it's like we should always finish the first meeting because I see it as the pitch, the one hour meeting uh, with a group where we are kind of taking the temperature to see if we want to do the diligence or not, and then the due diligence, and then the commitment. But after the first pitch, it's like, okay, uh, who uh, do you want an introduction with this? I think it could be a good fit, etc. So I think we can do that from from the beginning. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, uh, there's yeah, absolutely introduction, and uh, you know, also uh, 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 persuading or convincing other people to invest. Uh, because you have invested, right? Two two types of uh, things that uh, absolutely can be done as value adds. Um, so let's um, you know switch out. Okay, we've invested. Uh, the company is now starting to uh, move forward. They've they've just gone past the fundraising and they keep sending updates. So how do you uh, one for one you know keep on top of the updates and um, how do you continue to um, you know, engage and add value with the company. What are some of the principles that one could use as an angel investor to be, you know, really helpful uh, to the company that one has invested in? Mm, Javier, any tidbits here? Uh, I tend to be a small check in these companies. Uh, so I'm not kind of the one of the bigger uh, 
angels in the round that I'm, I'm usually not elite. So I think that we need to, there's two aspects. One, we need to keep the channels of communication open. So there's a constant pinging every few months. Hey, we are here, can we help, etc. And second, we should not crowd out the founders. Uh, we should leave the door always open and that's why we ping them so they know that if they have any doubts, they can always consult us and we will be there to provide another additional point of view so they can have a map of different points of view so they can triangulate to the truth. But I think that it is important that angels do not micromanage uh, founders. It is important that they make sure that the infrastructure is in place so founders can pull kind of Kanban they can pull from the advice of angels. Mm -hmm. uh, David, uh, uh, how do you uh, engage uh, with um, uh, the company after the investment and what, si what sort of things that, uh, that you do to uh, in a nurture the relationship? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's you know, striking that balance. You don't want to be a, a demanding angel investor, but I think the, the you know, having that, that communication and knowing what the entrepreneur needs and what they're looking for. And some of the best companies that I've, that I track, you know, whether or not I've invested in them or not, are the ones that are uh, very explicit about their asks, um, saying like, we need help with customer acquisition, or we are looking for a uh, legal uh, law firm with this, this legal specialty uh, that, that can help us out. Um, and so, you know, I always encourage entrepreneurs to put that in their updates uh, to, to be very explicit about that because, you know, I may, you know, follow a company for, you know, two years before the opportunity comes where I can make a connection that might help them grow their customer base or lead them to an expert in a particular area. You know, it, it, it's all about the network. Um, and so trying to facilitate that kind of growth of uh, and sharing of networks uh, is is probably the best way to to facilitate and add value to a, a company. Right, absolutely. And, you know, given that, see, uh, and as an in, in angel investor, you look at uh, your portfolio of companies and, you know, companies, you know, doing well, having best practices and companies and founders, uh, you know, still getting there. I tend to look at, you know, uh, look at it as a dashboard and I look at, you know, certain uh, best practices that one company is doing. I might suggest that, for example, in a company update, as you said, uh, David, having an explicit ask gets the, uh, your investment community uh, engaged in helping you out. Uh, and, you know, best practices in terms of uh, your, you know, monthly or quarterly updates, I find myself that I tend to have a better um, you know, make a easier decision of uh, follow-on investing if the uh, you know if if the company has been has shared updates regularly and has um, uh, you know uh, kept improving over time. So I find that um, uh, I, I find that you know having this dashboard of uh, of companies uh, and looking at how different companies are doing and being myself being able to absorb some of the best practices and communicate on sharing with other companies. Uh, is is something that uh, I I do to you know kind of nurture the relationship. Yeah, you know it's funny we we see a lot of companies uh, you know as investors, but a lot of entrepreneurs don't see how other entrepreneurs do it. 
And so I think that's exactly right. Like sharing those best practices, what you've seen other people do, sharing uh, copies of updates with permission um, so that, you know, they can, if you have a, a company that provides a great update, you can send that along to someone else and say, this is a great update, consider adopting something like this model. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. So, um, so, you know, uh, let's talk about, you know, some of the, the good and bad experiences and what lessons uh, we've each of us learned during this, uh, during this, uh, you know, angel investing experience of ours. So um, uh, David, you want to start out, you know, what's, what are some of the lessons that you've already learned uh, in your three, four years of investing? Yeah, I would say the, the, one of the biggest lessons is, you know, you never know where a particular conversation or, a, or an, an engagement is going to go. Um, and so, you know, I've, I've had certainly plenty of, of opportunities where, you know, I thought something was, uh, a particular entrepreneur was on to something really interesting and, you know, was in, engaging the conversation. And then they just decided, nope, this wasn't for me. And, you know, that they just, they just abandoned the opportunity. And this is some in the very early stages. Um, and so I think that, you know, and then on the other hand, there, you know, the, the thing that we always worry about is like uh, the, the false negatives where we, where you say no to a company for whatever reason, and then it goes on, on to great things. Those are going to be inevitable in any journey. Uh, so one of the things that's important is to, to just let go of that uh, and, and not, you know, be haunted by that and just accept that as, as part of the reality of, of angel investing. You're going to see a lot. You're going to jump on some things that win some things that lose and you're going to pass on some things that that win and you just have to accept that as part of the portfolio right right uh javier uh any any you know good bad experiences lessons i think that as more years pass doing angel investing uh, i keep on refining uh, and kind of highlighting certain uh, rules of thumb uh, one of them is that you cannot know if, and this is from a, a good angel that I know uh, that even if you think that you are making the right decision, there's so much uncertainty. You are just seeing a very little sliver of the whole landscape. Uh, life is so complicated and things change so much. Uh, and there's so many unknowns, unknowns that you have to be humble to realize that at the most, probably you're going to be able to do to see the no's faster. And when I say no, it's not that they are not going to succeed, it's that they are not for you. Uh, so first, be humble. Uh, second, uh, be self-aware. Uh, uh, we have biases. We cannot help it. We are humans. We have our own experience. We try to fit everything to the analogies of our past experiences. So trying to always look things from outside of yourself. Try to rely on uh, other colleagues doing due diligence and try to understand their point of view, especially when it contradicts yours. Uh, being a skeptic, not only uh, against what they are telling you in the pitch deck, but most importantly against yourself, because the same way that in a group there's a, a bias towards positive feedback loops, in your head there's the same, so you need to be uh, battling against yourself and your own biases and your own uh, convictions 
and, and outcomes of the process that you are learning. Right, right. Um, so, you know, I, you know for, for this, you know, I, I looked at my, uh, uh, the companies where, you know, I have uh, led uh, due diligence and I feel, you know, I did a, a reasonable job. I mean, you know, I cannot praise myself too much. I did a reasonable job in the due diligence. We spent uh, a lot of time, you know, doing, digging into various aspects. Um, so my learning uh, is that, you know, even the, even the most uh, stringent of due diligence or the best due diligence is not enough to avoid failures. What it is, what it essentially helps do you is, you know, uh, is avoid, you know, crash and burn uh, immediately. But um, uh, there was, you know, cases where I thought, you know, hey, we did a you know, pretty good due diligence on this company, but, uh, you know, we are looking at about 18 months, two years down the road, and, um, you know, it's no longer sustainable as a company. So um, not getting, not beating yourself up on that. And, but continuing to uh, you know focus on the key aspects of due diligence and not uh, lower the bar uh, in the future that is one lesson I've learned and the other is um, you know overlooking clear warning flags there were some deals where um, uh, I I've, you know I've invested because of the uh, the team and the product but I looked overlooked you know clear warning signs such as, you know, potential co-founder issues that, you know, were there, but, you know, didn't rise up to the level where the company was un uninvestable at a time. And then, uh, you know, lo and behold, in about 18 months, you know, the company blew up because of that. So um, those are some things that, you know, I've learned to pay greater attention to in my uh, future investing experience. And if I can say something, is the importance as angels uh, that when we are looking at pitch decks and we are looking at pitches, uh, we are not looking for perfection. And furthermore, if a pitch is perfect, uh, I kind of pay more attention to see why it is so perfect. Probably it's because it's been pitched many times. So again, it's not about perfection or completeness. That is something that we will have to do due diligence to convince ourselves. So it's, I don't see that as a necessary condition for the founders to communicate. Uh, I mean, they have to communicate the basics, uh, but it is the customer obsession is, is do they really have their heart in the right place in terms of the focus on the customer? Do they want to understand them or are they obsessed just with their own technology? Mm -hmm. Excellent. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we've had this, uh, the pandemic since uh, uh, March of last year. Um, and, uh, you know, everybody, the question on most people's uh, minds is, you know, how has the pandemic uh, impacted in the investing scene in Seattle? Uh, you know, what's happening to the, uh, you know, uh, to, the, to the investing pipeline? Um, so, Javier, have you seen any uh, you know, impact? What, what are you seeing in terms of uh, companies getting funding, uh, companies being founded uh, during this time? Uh, I think that there were two uh, parts. The first half of 2020, I think that everybody stopped on their tracks because there was no visibility of how this thing was going to evolve. So everybody stopped, everybody got scared, and from founders not pitching to investors not writing checks. And then in the second half, with a tidal wave of credit coming, uh, 
with the stock market in maximums, then is when there's been a deluge of especially venture capital uh, money funding uh, startups. So I think that there has been, on one hand, that kind of very big two different halves of the year in terms of fear, in terms of writing checks, which has the second half displaced some of the angels because the, the, the startups that had the best chances of getting funded have directly appealed to VCs and micro VCs. Uh, and I think that, and that's on one hand. On the other hand, I used to get my deal flow by doing a lot of legwork. So going to a lot of events and talking with a lot of founders, person to person, and COVID has made that impossible. So even although we can do some of that in Zoom, uh, I have seen that deal flow, at least in my side, particular, personally, uh, has been lower than 2019. Okay. David, what I, what have you seen? Yeah, well, I think it's, it's like so many things um, that have been impacted by COVID, particularly when it comes to that... Um, that notion of you know having to you know go down to a WeWork space or uh, go to a, a founder's office and and hear a pitch uh, that you know for all the negatives and I, I I agree with everything that Javier has said in terms of, of deal flow and the you know the impact of uh, so much liquidity in in capital markets right now, um, but uh, I think on the on the positive side it it does make it easier to to take that pitch or to uh, attend that conference. You know, there's a lot of a lot of um, conferences and, and events that that would typically require, you know, heading downtown, um, dealing with parking and all the, the time spent doing all that. Um, the ability to jump on a Zoom call and participate in that event or to take that founder meeting, um, it, it makes things a lot more efficient. Um, and I think as, you know, uh, an angel investment community, we've all gotten better at Zoom meetings and figuring out how to get the most value out of a Zoom meeting. So I think that's a trend that's going to that's gonna continue. Uh, be really interesting to see, you know, will, will there be a return to in-person meetings or will there be, uh, will everything be hybrid? You know, what are the trade-offs associated with that? There's always the value of like the hallway conversation or the informal part. That doesn't happen on Zoom, but the efficiency of uh, of virtual meetings is you know, cannot be overstated. Right, right. Uh, from my point of view, you know, I have seen you know minimal pipeline impact. Um, you know, um, in fact, uh, in uh, 2020, you know, I invested uh, more than I did in 2019. Uh, so, uh, I, you know, uh, so I, I've seen you know uh, companies the the pace of companies uh, pitching. And fundraising, at least from my point of view, doesn't seem to have slowed down overall. Um, the the thing that uh, I felt has had an impact is the um, is is the due diligence factor, is the ability, uh, the inability to go meet a, a founder in a cafe and look at their body language, uh, you know, see how they, you know, see how they're, how confident they are in terms of by their body language and how they interact with uh, other team members in their work setting. Uh, that has been, uh, you know, that's, that, that signal is much less, uh, uh, much more difficult to get. So um, I believe that, you know, as we go forward, 
um, you know, we're going to probably over a phase, you know, for the uh, maybe for a phase of time, we're going to have more face-to-face -face meetings and then things will, you know, kind of balance out to a, uh, a digital face-to-face uh, uh, -face meeting from that point onwards. So, yeah, I like the idea of the serendipity of uh, interactions with founders. Uh, I do remember when I was in WeWork Labs, uh, the fact that all the founders are there and they just kind of stop you and say, hey, I'm thinking about doing a fundraise, uh, but I have this doubt. Uh, those engagements, uh, those interactions that then it's like, hey, I have a friend that maybe is interested in having a talk with you. That is the thing that has that. I, I agree with David uh, of the importance of efficiency and Zoom is fantastic for part of that of that process because it really allows us to get many more people for an hour, an hour and a half, uh, prepare the questions in advance, get there and get it solved. And we can have many more meetings in a day. Excellent. Um, so as we uh, wind down into this podcast, uh, I want to ask um, each of you um, David and Javier, you know, what you're looking forward to this year and, you know, do you want to make any predictions for 2021, even though we are almost in the middle of February? Um, so David, do you want to start? Well, I think that that, that pressure uh, of, of VCs coming in and investing uh, at, um, at earlier and earlier stages is going to continue and that's going to continue to, to place pressure on uh, on angel investors to try to, you know, source the, the best deals, uh, that are out there. Um, particularly, you know, smaller, smaller angels who, you know, don't have the, the immediate access to, to all of the, the deal flow that's potentially there. Uh, on the positive side, I mean, I think like Seattle is a, a great place. You know, one of the myths of angel investing is that, you know, you have to be in California. Um, you know, the, the, in the same way that that the liquidity and in the amount, you know, the the, the success of the stock market has created more competition for good deals. I think it has also created uh, more opportunity for entrepreneurs to step out and say, "Okay, this is a thing I'm going to go and try to do." Uh, so I think we're just going to see, you know, a continued sort of push and pull, uh, trying as as both sides of the entrepreneur side and the investor side continue to grow. Uh, but I think hopefully we'll we'll see more you know, more energy around the Pacific Northwest and the Seattle ecosystem in particular. And we can really start to rival California uh, in terms of the, you know, the amount of deals that are done and, and the number of unicorns that are potentially produced here. I think it's, it's only going to go up. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Javier, um, what do you look forward uh, for the rest of the year and any predictions? I think that 2021 is going to be better than 2020, obviously. I think that we are starting better than I have seen in the last six months in terms of deal flow and quality of deal flow that I'm seeing, which is positive. Uh, I think following what David said, the importance of strength in numbers, uh, groups like Grabstakes or Alliance of Angels allow uh, kind of economies of scale in terms of aggregating deal flow from different members, which is fantastic. And also uh, aggregating due diligence, which makes people more informed and better able to make better decisions and write more checks, which is the importance. And, uh, and having a, a reputation, a collective reputation of being there to help founders and to be of value. So I think I, I am optimistic in 2021. I think that there's going to be 
uh, still challenges because uh, beta exists. So everybody wants to believe that everybody is super smart and you're investing on the alpha and you're going to get it right. But the cycles exist and we are going up into the cycle and probably we haven't still picked. So there's better times and worse times to invest. But still, we can find the jewels, the right teams with the right ideas and the right ambition. So I think mm -hmm. I'm optimistic. Okay. I, I you know personally, I think the crop of companies uh, that are going to come up for, say, their first fundraising uh, in, say, the, you know, uh, uh, this quarter or the next quarter are going to be uh, very interesting and uh, probably need to pay attention to because they would have probably started, you know, at the peak of the pandemic, uh, early, mid to late last year. And so uh, there is a statistic that companies that got founded in the deep uh, uh, recession in 2008, 2000, early 2009, uh, 10 years later, they did like extremely well. So I'm looking forward to the companies that are going to uh, do their early stage, uh, you know, seed stage uh, fundraising in uh, the first half of this year. So, yeah, agreed. Um, it's a, it, although I think it's a slightly different time, right, in terms of, you know, the, the economic downturn that was precipitated by COVID, like who that impacts and, and how that impacts. Um, but yeah, certainly you, you'd have to think that someone who decided to start a company in the midst of a pandemic is uh, resourceful and has a real burning idea. So I think there's a lot of reason for optimism there. I think that in terms of knowledge economy, uh, where we tend to invest the most in terms of IT and software, uh, it hasn't been felt the recession yet. I think that we are there's no recession in the part of the economy where we live and even in the region of the United States where we live. I think that Seattle has a fantastic uh, ability to pass this valley right now because we have these huge companies of knowledge economy. So I don't know if 2021 is going to be the best year to invest or 2022. Mm -hmm. That's my personal point of view. All right. On that, um, on that question, uh, thank you, uh, David. Uh, thanks, Javier, for uh, coming on to the Startup Seattle podcast and uh, sharing with uh, with me and with our audience your experiences in angel investing. Uh, thank you so much and hope we can do another round of this conversation maybe in the second half of this year and see how things are going. Sounds great. Thank you very much. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks to you for tuning in. Always like to hear back from you. You can tweet to us at Media one that is C-A-R-A-B-I-N-E-R-M-E-D-I-A and the number one. You can also send us email, startupfeedback at carabinermedia.com. We hope you share this podcast with your friends and colleagues and also rate us in your favorite podcast player. See you next time.